0: We sing many songs this time of year, and one that we sing um, both in, in church, you'll hear it played on the radio as well, is O Holy Night, and the words go like this, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth, long lay the world in sin, in air pining, and sometimes... This time of year we'll sing things that we really don't know. What in the world does ear pining mean? Right? And we'll ask questions like that. And then it says, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. oh hear the angel voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night when Christ was born. This song is about waiting. It's about anticipation. It's about the thrill of hope, something to come, the coming of Jesus. Jesus came into a world which was long laid in sin, which is greatly depicted in these words, and also ear pining, which what in the world does that mean? Um, it means to be desperate. It's a desperate waiting that includes suffering, it includes pain, it includes discontent. Worry. And I love this song because I think it, it, it rightly portrays and, and, and uh, describes the world and the state of the world that we are in. Fretful, worry, discontent, unsatisfied, suffering, and pain. And those whose thrill of hope is in Christ, that we're waiting, we're desperately waiting for him. And I think Micah, I think Micah, if he's picked a song, he says, hey, I, I need a song that, that depicts my book, right? <laughs> I, I, I need a song. I think it would have been this, because it, it portrays, I think, his waiting and what he wrote about. And so today, I would like to do this. Turn a little bit, if you would, back a couple pages to 658 or there in Micah chapter 1. And I want us to see a little background before we get to chapter 5 and, and why Micah wrote. Because it helps us to understand the world to which Christ came into. And, and Micah depicted perfectly. And so I want us to see that this morning. Look at Micah chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Verse um, 1 when is this all happening? When is this guy writing? Because it was a long time ago. Uh, it, It was a long, long time ago. And so who did he write to when? And it tells us in verse one of chapter one, it says, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to give you a little some history lessons here this morning, some Old Testament history, just to kind of help us out a little bit. Um, but but here, Micah is writing in the years of these kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which was from seven thirty five BC before Christ to seven hundred BC, and so Micah prophesied during these tragic days when Assyria conquered Samaria, and they took the ten northern tribes into captivity. And so we know that date of 722 B.C., and they occupied Judah, and they besieged the holy city in Jerusalem. And so this is when Micah, this was his day. This is when he's writing. This is when he is prophesying is in this period. And so it's days of great tragedy and, and, and pain and suffering for Israel. And who did he write to? Well, We see at the end of verse one it says concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, and Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. And so what Micah is going to do is he's going to bounce back and forth throughout this letter He's going to mention both of these capital cities, and he's going to speak to them um, with threats of doom and destruction. And we're going to hear that this morning. But at the same time, he's also going to declare promises of hope in the midst of all the tragedy that is being experienced by the people of Judah and Israel. And so God wants his people, That's the message of this book. God wants his people to know there is hope even in the darkest of times. He speaks of gloom, but he also speaks of glory. And so Micah didn't bring the doom that he's going to talk about. He didn't bring that, okay? Israel, the Israelites, they brought it upon themselves. And how did they do that? Well, look at verse 6 in seven here, if you would. It says, for I will make Samaria a heap of runes in the open country, okay? And so this is Micah. Now, this is the word of the Lord. So when you read this, Micah's speaking, okay? But it's the word of God. So so God is speaking, okay? And Micah is his communicator, okay? He's announcing this to the people of Israel. He says, I will make Samaria a heap of runes in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley. I will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire, and all of her images I will make desolate. For the collected theme from a harlot's earnings and to the earnings of a harlot, they will return. And so when you read this, okay, when you hear language like um, Samaria will be a heap of runes, I will pour her stones down into the valley and lay bare her foundations. When you hear things like that, those are words of judgment. That God is going to bring judgment. He is going to bring this doom and destruction upon Samaria. Why? Well, verse 7 told us, because of all Samaria's idols. Okay. And so what Micah is going to do is he's going to speak of the, the sin problem in Samaria and in Jerusalem. And it was the Israelites, and they struggled with idolatry. Uh, a few weeks ago, I remember Eliana, my youngest daughter. And, Eliana, I don't know if you remember this. I'm going to put you on the spot this morning. That's one of the cool things about sitting in church service as the pastor's kid. Noah and Pierce and Grace know this. You get called out every now and then, but this is for good stuff, okay? And you told me a verse a few weeks ago. We do not have this planned, so she's totally caught off guard here. But you told me a verse from Exodus chapter 20 verse three, where, where God gives us 10 commandments. And, and it was awesome. I remember you came from open church and you were like, dad, we should have no other gods before the one true God. You remember that? I remember that. I, I was like, that's exactly right. And God declared that to the Israelite people uh, through the prophet Moses. You shall have no other gods before me. And so what is Israel guilty of here? They're guilty of idolatry, of putting other gods before the one true God. You see, all the gods of this world, they will not satisfy or give meaning to our lives. And what is a a little g God? A little g God is anything, okay, that that we put before the one true God. Our our affections, our our time, our our, um, uh, money. I mean, we, we put a lot of, Focus and emphasis and priority in other things and we put them before God. That is idolatry. Now back here, they would create images of, of other gods and, and, and create statues and things like that. Today, it looks different. It can be consumerism, and, and especially this time of year, the buying of stuff. It's, we're trying to get other things to satisfy the longing of our soul when only the one true God can do that. And Israel was looking to other gods. Idolatry, the worship of other gods, it leads to sins that ruin human life. And as a result of that, God brings destruction. He brings judgment upon Samaria and also Jerusalem because of their idolatry. Not only their idolatry, look at verse uh, 2 of chapter 2. Listen to what he says here. They covet... (laughs) They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family great calamity um, from which you cannot remove your necks and you will not walk through or walk hotly for it will be an evil time. And so what is he talking about here? He's talking about covetousness or coveting, right? And the spirit of greed was widespread throughout Judah, and also Israel as well. And and so what you saw was a world of discontent, a world of discontent, longing for things that they didn't have and wanting it and doing whatever they wanted to get it. I mean, doesn't that describe our world, right? The discontent, the, the, the unsatisfaction. They wanted to be satisfied by the things of this World and they would do anything to get it. They wanted what their neighbor had. They sinned in coveting. Not only that, look at verse 9 of chapter 3 as we just kind of look through these different issues that the people of Israel had. In verse 9 it says this, Now hear this. Heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice, they hate justice, and twist everything that is straight. is that interesting? Does that not sound like our day? In verse 10, who builds Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. And then he says, therefore, verse 12, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of runes, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. And so we see this greed, we see this coveting. And what did it do? It corrupted justice. It even made the leaders, as it talks about in verse 9, the heads of the house of Jacob. These leaders were priests, and they were prophets that we see spoken about (coughs) in verse 11 as well. And they would take bribes. And so prophets um, would tell you what you wanted to hear for a price. They would take bribes. And so you see this um, hate, this abhorring for justice you see these leaders and rulers, um, man, that 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 would do whatever you wanted, say whatever you wanted for a dime, and that's the condition of Israel. And so, as a result of this, Micah promises doom and destruction in verse twelve—a heap of ruins—and so that will happen. It happened in 722 B.C. Jerusalem will go into exile in Babylon that we read about in chapter 4, verse 10. If you want to see that there, it specifically says that you will go to Babylon, right? And so that will happen to the people of Israel in 586 B.C. By that time, though, Micah was long gone, and Jerusalem will fall. And so Israel destroyed themselves with putting other gods before the one true God, with their greed of wanting what other people had and doing whatever they could to get it. They coveted things, and they perverted justice. What was straight, they twisted for their own good and their own desires. God obviously doesn't want that. And when that happens, we're in opposition with God. There's no peace with God. There's, There's judgment that will come. Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Because of sin, there are consequences. And we see that throughout this writing and this declaring of Micah. But what does God want? Look at chapter 6. Look at God, what he says, and what he requires, what he desires. In chapter 6, verse 7 Micah says, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so here's what Micah is saying. You know, should I go and make these sacrifices to, to appease my sin, my shame, my guilt? And the Israelites were good at religion. They were good at religion. But they failed when it came to the condition of their heart. In verse 8, listen to what Micah says. This is what God wants. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he longs for his people, to walk humbly with God. Your God. This is the last thing he says, but the first thing I want to talk about is God wants us to have a trust in him, a dependence on him. He wants a relationship with us. He wants fellowship with us. He wants childlike dependence on him, which is opposite of idolatry. Then if you go up to the next thing he says, he wants us to love God kindness. He wants us to have a love for kindness, a heart that loves to show mercy, a heart that loves to show kindness, which is the opposite of coveting, which is the opposite of greed. He wants us to have a heart of love for kindness. And then the first thing he said, but the last thing I want to mention is he wants us to do justice. These are works and deeds of justice. He wants us to have a life that is active on behalf of those who are mistreated, the poor, the widows, the orphans, those who are hurting, those in need, which is the opposite of injustice and the opposite of what the evil leaders were doing. This is what God longs for us. This is what he requires for us. But the sin and the evil is so dark. And as a result of their sin, Israel is now at war a war. Israel used to be the country that they, they would go in, in the name of God and the strength of God and they would defeat their em, enemies. But, but now the tables have turned. They have enemies all around them, coming at them, defeating them with Assyria, eventually Babylonians. So how can they have hope? How can they have hope? How can Micah, in the midst of this doom and destruction, speak of hope. Well, look at chapter 7. Look what he says here. But as for me, I will watch expectantly. I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That's faith. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Verse 8. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light. For me, Micah has hope, hope in the midst of doom. And then look at verse 18. This is why Micah has hope. This is what he believes in. This is what he hopes for it says in verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, sin, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, praise the Lord, because he delights in unchanging love. He will, again, have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And so what was Micah's hope relying on? mercy. The mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. So there is hope for Israel. There's hope for Judah. If they will turn and do justice, if they will love mercy and kindness, and if they will walk humbly with their God, depending on Him and trusting in Him, there is hope of mercy. There is hope of forgiveness. But how is this made possible? I mean, that's my question. How is this made possible? How does the thrill of hope come to Israel? How can they have that? How can we have that? The thrill of hope in a world laid in sin and air pining. That's where we get to chapter 5, and I just want to touch this this morning a little bit before we dismiss. And look what it says in chapter 5, verse 2. We read it, and look what he says. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They laid siege against us with a rod. They will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so here in this one chapter, we kind of get, or this one verse, we kind of get a taste at the beginning of chapter 5. This is the condition in Israel. They're at war. They're at war. A country at war. Enemies around them, surrounding them. That's what it means, daughter of troops. They are a country at war. And in the midst of this is where Micah says this great prophecy. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so what is Micah talking about? Bethlehem is scarcely worth counting among the clans of Judah, yet God chooses to bring something amazing out of Bethlehem. And what is Micah talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus, that he will bring Jesus out of this town. And who is he? He speaks of him here. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler, king in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He, He is eternal, He's always been. He's the son of God. Colossians 1, 17 says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things because he's eternal. And in him all things hold together. He is God. He's the son of God. And it's to this little city that Jesus, the Messiah, will be born. And so the question is why? Why Bethlehem? One answer is that the Messiah is of the lineage, the family line of the king, uh, uh, King David. David was a Bethlehemite. If you go to uh, 1 Samuel 16, I believe, you read that. And that's true. Right? That, that, I think that's one of the, the, the things that we take from this is because Jesus is the son of David, right? He, he's in that line. He, he is the king of kings. He's, he's who um, Samuel prophesied in, in, in 2 Samuel when we talked about the Davidic uh, uh, covenant of this one who would come in the line of David. And so, yes, that is true. But I think in this text, if that, that's all we say, we're missing what Micah wanted to get across, I think real simply what he's saying here is that Bethlehem is small. It's small. It's overlooked. And God chooses something small, quiet, out of the way, and does something there that changes the course of history and eternity. Why? Why does he do that? Why does God work that way? Why does he choose Bethlehem? Because when he acts, when God acts this way, you and I can't boast. You and I can't boast in the merits of man, but only in the glorious mercy of God. I think God, in bringing Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, was for God to say that he is most glorious that he is most glorious. When God chose a replacement for King Saul, if we, we think of David, he sent Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem. When he chose the son of Jesse, he set his favor on um, the youngest, not on the oldest. When God chose a man to defeat a giant by the name of Goliath, it was little shepherd boy David. When he chose a weapon, it was a slingshot. Why? Why does God do his great work through little towns and youngest sons and slingshots and and mangers and mustard seeds that we read about in the Gospels. David tells us in 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47, just before David slays the giant, he says to Goliath, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, and this day the, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know this... There is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear for the battles the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. And that's what God does. God uses little towns, youngest sons, slingshots to magnify his glory by contrast. To show that he is not the least dependent on us. He's not the least dependent on human glory or human greatness or human achievement whatsoever. But it's all about him. And so the coming of the Messiah to Bethlehem was about the glory of God, about the greatness of God. And then in verse three, he says this. He says, therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. It seems in verse 2 he is focused on the first advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And now it seems he turns to the second coming. I'll be honest with you, verse 3, there's so many views on, on what is being talked about here through so many different lenses and, and, and ideas of... Uh, um, in times, and and I mean, it, it is, verse three is an interesting verse that is interpreted in, in many different ways. But I, I want us just, if we could look at the verse, and he says, therefore he, that he is God, right? And he will give them. Who is them? It's Israel. Israel, who in the book of Micah is under God's judgment. He's gonna give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. It seems here, some debate over this, is referring to the time of the coming of the Messiah. right? I, I think you could also go to <coughs> places like Revelation 12, verse 1 through 6, where we kind of see this same idea. Um, and then it says at the end of this verse, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now, it's, when you look at prophets in the Old Testament... Um, they're vague about timing, right? They're vague about timing. When it says, then the rest of his brothers will return, he does not tell us when. What's he talking about, right? Some believe that this is looking ahead and looking forward to Pentecost, even. That, that maybe it has in view of, of, of a great Um, revival of of people coming to Christ, especially Jews coming to Christ when they are saved. But it also seems as though this is even maybe after the Messiah comes. And and so definitely in view here is the second coming of Jesus, I I believe. And and it's connected that he's he's coming again, but it doesn't say when, right? It's kind of like the language of the end of Revelation when Jesus says... um, I, I'm coming quickly. I'm, I'm coming soon. Okay? But, but when is that? And, and I think the point of verse 3 is, is simply this. Micah knows this, that Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. And his coming will mean there, there will be a great gathering right? uh, of, of Israel, okay? but not only Israel, believers in Christ, And when I say Israel, those who have been redeemed, those who have come to Christ and trusted him as their Lord and Savior. And so what we see here is there's a season of hardness. We see it in the people of Israel. They're unresponsive to God. But what this is hoped for is that there is a day coming where that hardness will be taken away, and there will be those whose lives are changed, and and that Israel will be grafted into the tree of true and redeemed Israel. those who believe in Christ as their Messiah, not just for Israel, but also for all who would believe in Christ. And so the simple message of verse 3, I think, is simple this, that the Messiah is coming again. The first advent in verse 2. I believe the second advent in verse 3. And then look what it says in verse 4, and I love this. The Messiah will shepherd his people. It says he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Why did God send Jesus? Obviously for his glory. We've seen that, verse two. But he sent Jesus to shepherd his people. Everyone in the room today, all of us, we need a divine shepherd. We need a divine shepherd. We need the care and protection of a shepherd. Some of us in here today, we we may not know that. We may have not thought of that before. We need a divine shepherd. For those times we go through the loss of a loved one, the seasons and the valley of the shadow of death, we, we need a divine shepherd. So the seasons where we get health news that man rocks us, unsettles us. Whether it's news about our health or news about maybe someone close or family member, it can rock us. We need a divine shepherd. Psalm 23, some familiar words. Says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For God, you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. That, what David was speaking about, is a divine shepherd. That's who God is, and that's who we all need. And Micah says here about this divine shepherd, It says he will arise. He will arise. You know what that means? That Jesus the Messiah will stand for you. He's not just laying down and chilling, he's standing for you. He is for you. When everything else seems against you and coming at you, he stands for you as your divine shepherd. Not only that, he will shepherd his flock, it says. Jesus will feed us and care for us as we read in Psalm 23. And then it says, He will serve us in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, His God. What does that mean? That He will serve us in the strength of the Lord. With Jesus, the power of God is on our side. The power of God is on our side. As you follow Christ, as you obey Jesus, He will help you overcome every obstacle. It doesn't mean there won't be obstacles. It doesn't mean there won't be problems and pain and suffering. Micah is a good example of that. But what it does mean is he will help us overcome. He will help us overcome. He will help us overcome every obstacle for your forever joy. He will. And then he says they will remain, at the end of verse 4, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. I think, I think what he's talking about here is is our security, our security. Our security is guaranteed, and why? Because Jesus is great, and there is none greater. And so this is a message to a people that were looking to other things for their security, their satisfaction, their happiness, and their joy. And Micah says, guys, hold the boat. You need a divine shepherd. You need a divine shepherd. Not only in the doom and the days of destruction, you need him even in the good times up on the mountain. You need a divine shepherd. He is great. He's great. He will lead you, care for you. He will feed you. He will take you through the obstacles of life. He will be with you, and he will hold you and keep you secure in his hand. That's what Jesus said. John 10, he he promised that for us, that he will hold us in his hand, the hand of the Father, the hand of Jesus, for his sheep who hear his voice. And he will provide this lastly, verse 5, just these six words. Listen to what he says. This one, this divine shepherd, this Messiah who will come out of Bethlehem, who's coming and then he's going to come again, this one will be our peace. He will be our peace. Ephesians 2, 13, 14, I think puts it the best, and this is what Jesus came to do, and this is how our peace was purchased and bought and made possible. Verse 13 in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, this one that Mike is talking about, you who formerly were far off from God have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What I love about Ephesians 2 is this is for Israel, this is for Gentiles, this is for all. And he says Actually, yeah, that was verse 19. There we go. And then verse 14. For he himself, listen to what he says, he is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Jesus does this. He gives us peace with God, and he does that. He's going to do that through the cross, through his blood. He makes it possible for the wrath of God, the anger of God, to be satisfied in Jesus and the price that he paid And when we trust in him, when we believe in him, that we now have peace because of what Jesus does on our behalf. He breaks down that barrier between us and God. And not only that, he breaks down that barrier between people. He is our peace. He brings peace. It was lacking in Micah's day. And he declared, hey, this one from long ago who's coming to Bethlehem He's going to come again. He's going to be our divine shepherd, and he's going to give us peace. And so this season, I, I pray, just like Micah's heart, his mind was filled with great wonder, of, a, a thrill of hope, of a day coming, even in the midst of a world laid in sin and, and air and pining and all the desperation, the, the, the un. Settleness, the unhappiness, the, the lack of joy in a world like that that was twisting everything that was straight, injustice and poverty, oppression, coveting, greed, idolatry. Micah says there's the thrill of hope. There's great wonder. And on this side of history, of one who has come. And he has laid down his life so that we could have peace with God. And so this season of Advent is a gift. It's a gift to us. And Jesus wants us to know, he doesn't want us to miss this in this season. He wants us to know that the greatest gift of all is himself. He is our peace. So this day, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, as your divine shepherd, (laughs) If you've never had childlike dependence and trusted in him alone, and believed in who he is and what he came to do to die for us, I pray, I pray today that, that you would give up and surrender and believe in him and trust in him and say, Jesus, I want you to be my divine shepherd. I don't want to do this on my own. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I don't want to lean on my own thinking of what is right and, 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 and trusting in my own path and all this kind of stuff or trusting in these other gods or whatever it may be that you're clinging to. But God, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to trust in your son. And So I pray that for you today. And church, I pray that this is a season where we remember this is who Christ is. He is our Messiah. He is our divine shepherd. He is our peace. Let's pray.